following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. breakfast meeting this morning with a dear brother a serious christian a man who has sacrificed much for the kingdom of god as we began to speak together about jesus our hearts immediately turned to the crying need for the gospel to be effective in america today the concern on his heart was that seemingly, regardless of what their church attempted to do, whether handbills being handed out, any number of attempts to reach the community, they all seemed utterly ineffective. And he was asking the rhetorical question, what do we have to do to reach the lost with Jesus Christ? He said, when I was a child, and he is a man in his 70s, he said, when I was a child, everyone went to church. Now it seems very few go to church. America has lost ground. America has lost ground in the battle against darkness. And he was saying, what? What is it going to take? I wish I had the answer. I said, my brother, I, I have only one answer for you. And that answer is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That's what must change. We must have the Holy Spirit. Without him, we're going to be utterly ineffective. Now, I have to tell you, I'm not happy with the condition. I'm not happy with the condition 
of those who call themselves Christians today. I find those who call themselves Christians participating in every kind of darkness, running after the entertainment of the day, sitting for hours before the television watching the football or baseball or basketball games. And there is no conviction that this is wrong. I watch men and women in today's Christian church spending their money like the world with no concern for the gospel of Jesus. In fact, the majority do not even pay tithe 10% of their income to Jesus. Many in the church give a, a dollar or five dollars when the offering plate is passed. I remember one church that I visited in Los Angeles. I was sitting in the congregation watching and listening when it was announced that it was offering time and the people leapt to their feet with joy and began to clap and shout thank you Jesus but why would they act that way because God had done so much for them they were so excited about the offering that was the most exciting thing that happened through the whole service it was like Simon the leper and Mary the prostitute all Mary could do is be at the feet of Jesus and weep and kiss his feet while Simon would not even offer him the courtesy of oil for his hair or water for his feet with the servant washing them and Jesus asked the question who would love more the one who is forgiven much or the one who is forgiven little I have a sense that the modern church has no sense of God's forgiveness we have been forgiven for very little and so we have very little love I'm obviously very dissatisfied with the results of Pilgrim's Progress. I'm dissatisfied with your progress. I expect much more. Is the problem with me or is the problem with you? Or do both of us have a problem? I suspect the latter. For if my preaching were sufficient, if the power of the Spirit was sufficient in the preaching, your heart would be pierced and you would be weeping before God and coming into a place of such joy and victory that nothing could stop you. I want to share a story today. I promised last Friday that I would, or last Thursday, that I would share this with you. And I've prayed about it, and I'm certain that I am to do so. It's uncomfortable, but it's real. I asked this brother 
Have you ever heard of a man by the name of Charles Finney? He was curious. He said, no, I've never heard of him. Who was he? Who is he? So I began to share with him that Charles Finney is credited with more than 250 souls converted through his preaching. He started his ministry in a little place called Adams in New York State. He preached and taught in the 1800s. He was one of the primary founders of Oberlin College. I believe that's why the devil has been so much after the destruction of Oberlin College. And today, Oberlin College is recognized as one of the most liberal bastions of sin in any university in America. That's not accidental. Charles Finney was born August 29, 1792. He grew up in Oneida County, New York, which was basically a wilderness at that time. He was trained as an attorney and had a glorious salvation story. Now, he had no regular training for ministry. And so when he decided at the call of the Holy Spirit that he was to preach and that he was to leave his work as an attorney, he did not expect or even want to labor in large towns or cities. Instead, he decided to go into the new settlements and preach in schoolhouses, in barns, and in groves of trees. So after he was licensed to preach by the Presbyterian Church, he took a commission for six months from a missionary society located in Oneida County. He went to the northern part of Jefferson County and he began to preach in a little village called Evans Mills. There were two churches in Evans Mills. There was a, a small congregational church without a pastor and a Baptist church with a pastor. Well, he presented his credentials to the deacons of the congregational church and they were happy to have him begin holding meetings. Now, they had no meeting house, no church building, but they had the use of a large stone schoolhouse. And one week the Baptist would meet, and the next week the Congregationalists would meet. But because the Christian faith was at a very low ebb in Evans Mills, there were no evening meetings. You heard me correctly. If there are no prayer meetings in your church, you are at a very low ebb of the Christian faith. If all you have are entertainment Sundays with the band and the jokes and the entertainment and a pastor who stands and tells jokes about the Redskins, you are indeed in a church in dire spiritual condition. 
Well, this is what Charles Finney found in Evans Mills. He divided his Sunday time between Evans Mills and then the next Sunday when he couldn't use the church, he went to a a small village called Antwerp. It was 17 miles away. And of course, his only means of travel was a horse or buggy. So he began to preach in the stone schoolhouse at Evans Mills. The people were very much interested and and they came in throngs. They came to hear him preach. And they loved his preaching. The little congregational church became hopeful. The leadership became hopeful that they could build up a stable congregation. Well, convictions occurred under nearly every sermon that he preached. But what he was concerned by was that there was no general conviction appearing on what he called the public mind. Now, today, we don't even expect any conviction on the public mind. The public mind is caught up entirely with the entertainment of the day, the politics of the day. Charles Finney writes, I was very much dissatisfied with this state of things. And at one of my evening services, therefore, after having preached there two or three Sundays and several evenings in the week, I told the people at the close of my sermon that I had come there to secure the salvation of their souls. After all, I did not come there to please them, but to bring them to repentance. It did not matter to me how well they were pleased with my preaching if they rejected my master. Something was wrong, either in me or in them, and I could not spend my time with them unless they were going to receive the gospel, as I said all of this to them. And then quoting the words of Abraham's servant, I said, And now, if ye will, deal kindly and truly with my master. Tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. I asked them this question and insisted that I must know what course they proposed to take. If they did not plan to become Christians and enlist in the service of the Savior, I wanted to know it so that I might not labor with them in vain. I said to them, You admit that what I preach is the gospel. You profess to believe it. Now do you intend to receive it or reject it? You must have some idea about it. I now have a right to take it for granted inasmuch as you admit that I have preached the truth, that you acknowledge your obligation at once to become Christians. This obligation you do not deny, but will you meet the obligation? Will you discharge it? Will you do what you admit you ought to do? If you will not, tell me, and if you will, tell me so that I may turn to the right or to the left. After I saw that they understood this, but still looked greatly surprised at the way I put it, I said to them, Now I must know your decision. 
you who are now willing to pledge to me and to Christ that you will immediately make your peace with God, please stand up. On the contrary, you who want me to understand that you are committed to remain in your present attitude, not to accept Christ, those of you who are of this mind may remain seated. They looked at one another and at me, and they just sat still, just as I expected. After looking around at them for a few moments, I said, then you are committed. You have rejected Jesus Christ, and you have rejected his gospel. You are witnesses, one against the other, and God is witness against you all. You may remember as long as you live that you have thus publicly committed yourselves against Jesus and said, we will not have this man to reign over us. This is the grist of what I urged upon them. And when I thus pressed them, they began to look angry. And then in mass, they started for the door. When they began to move, I paused. As soon as I stopped speaking, they turned to see why I didn't go on. I said, I'm sorry for you, and I will preach to you again, the Lord willing, tomorrow night. And they all left the house, except a deacon who was from the Baptist church. I saw that the Congregationalists were confounded. They were few in number and very weak in faith. I presume that every member of both churches who was present except the deacon was taken aback and concluded that, by my imprudence, I had ruined all hopeful appearances. The deacon came up and he took me by the hand and smiling said, Brother Finney, you have got them. They cannot rest under this. Rely upon it. The brethren are all discouraged, but I am not. I believe you have done the very thing that needed to be done and that we shall see the result. Well, I need to stop a moment and talk about what Charles Finney has done. His question to them was not, do you have religion? His question was, are you willing to do your duty and renounce your life and follow Jesus Christ and meet the conditions of salvation? Now, I've been preaching to you for quite some time. And by your own testimony to me, many of you have said, Pastor, we believe what you're preaching is the truth. One person said to me, I know you're absolutely right, Pastor. There has to be a change. We can't go on like we are. We need the Holy Spirit. Well, while it is true that we need the Holy Spirit, and while it's true that I've asked you to pray at sunrise, that's 6.31, and at noon, 
and at sunset for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Only five of you were willing to make that covenant with me. I was absolutely astonished that only five of you would call last Thursday and say, we will make a covenant to pray. I shouldn't have been surprised because after all, we've all been Americanized with the belief that it's not what you do that counts, it's what you say that counts. And if we say we're we're following Jesus, and if we say we're saved, then that means we are. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. We're not saved by saying we're saved. We're saved by walking clean, righteous, by the power of the blood of Jesus, having utterly renounced the devil and all works of darkness, having renounced the world and the flesh and the devil, and we walk in Jesus in reality, and everything that we possess belongs to him, our time, our energy, our children, our wives, our husbands. We have given everything into the power of God. We have reserved nothing back. We've held nothing back. He is the total authority and commander of our life. And yet when I have spoken with many of you and I have said to you, are you entirely sold out to Jesus? Most of you have answered the question by saying, no, there are areas where I'm still struggling, as though that somehow justified the continuation of your rebellion against God. When you say to me, I'm still struggling in some key areas, it tells me one of two things. Either you have not listened carefully to the messages that have been preached on Pilgrim's Progress, and you still think that salvation comes by trying hard and do-it-yourself theology, which is legalism. Or you frankly just don't want to totally surrender to Jesus. You're having too much fun being a worldly Christian as though there were possibly that kind of beast. A worldly Christian is an oxymoron. It's two opposites. You can't be a worldly Christian. There's no such thing as a worldly Christian. And you say, oh, but wait, Paul said the Corinthians were carnal. Yes, he was rebuking them and saying, stop it. You can't be a follower of Jesus and argue amongst yourselves and fight with one another. You can't do that and call yourself a Christian. So I guess what I want to ask you today is what are you going to do with Pilgrim's Progress? What are you going to do with with the preaching of the word that you hear day by day on this station? You know, I... How do I put this? It is true that Christianity creates the freest, most wonderful nations of any in the world. It is true that Christians, when they come together, say, let's treat our brother like ourselves, like we want to be treated. 
And so in the Christian faith, there is great freedom and love. And so the great nation of America was built on the Judeo-Christian values. There is more liberty where the Christian message is proclaimed than in Hindu lands, certainly in Muslim lands, certainly among Shintoism or Buddhism. Look at the nations who who are Muslim. Is it truly a religion of peace or a religion of oppression of women, violence, wickedness? Look at India, where Buddhism reigns and Hinduism reigns. Is that a nation where I want to live? Absolutely not, unless I'm a missionary to bring Christ to them. Because they don't have the social structure that we enjoy. There's not the care for our brother there. No, they let you starve on the streets. The problem is, we who've called ourselves Christians have allowed the world to come in and steal from us the very thing that made us people of nation-building liberty and joy and happiness, and that is being utterly, totally sold out to Jesus Christ. No, now we've sold out to the smorgasbord of the devil, eating his delicacies and poisoning the church. And this is not a new battle. My goodness, when I was just a boy, the battle was raging, and when I read the early history of the church even back jonathan edwards his grandpa was pastor of the church and he decided the church would prosper if he would allow the half converted to come in and receive full fellowship in his church and so those who would not sell out and totally give themselves to jesus christ but who still wanted christian marriages and who still wanted Christian funerals who still wanted the service of the communion the Eucharist he decided the half converted could be a part of the church and so they were brought in later when Jonathan Edwards was appointed the pastor of his grandpa's church he was so troubled that he spent 18 hours a day, month after month, year after year, in his study, weeping before God over the condition of his church, asking for a change in his church, and asking for revival, and asking for the Holy Spirit. The church got mad with him. They wanted him to come to the dances and the parties. They wanted him to be a social pastor. They wanted him to be a cheerleader, not a prayer man. They accused him of not doing his duty. That's why he finally wrote the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he was not talking about the world. He was talking about his church. They were the sinners he was concerned about. 
and when he preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, his church just yawned and said, What's your next sermon? They were utterly bored by it. But a neighboring church heard about Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, look, history tells us that Jonathan Edwards wrote his sermon out longhand and that his reading of it was dry and unemotional. There was nothing of the flesh to catch your attention in Jonathan Edwards' sermons. And a neighboring church heard and said, Would you come read your sermon to us? So he stood in front of them, and he began the dry rehearsal of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And the Spirit of God fell. And men began to grab the pillars in the church because they felt like the church was tilting and that they were going to slide off into hell. Men began to shriek. Women began to weep and faint because the conviction was so heavy in that church. We know this is the third great revival where God's power swept the whole nation. God was preparing America to rebel against England that he might establish a free nation. Well, he went back to his own church and a couple of the young teenagers became sexually involved And he did what he always did. He called them forward in the worship service and rebuked them in front of the church. And of course, they were very upset, but not nearly as upset as Mama and Daddy, who were very wealthy. And the result was Jonathan Edwards was fired. He was fired. It was the seed planted by his grandpa that allowed the half-converted into the church. It was the seed that Moses allowed to be planted when Egyptians joined them as part of the rabble that went into the wilderness. And they were the first to complain and begin to instigate complaints against God and against Moses and caused the entire body of the children of Israel to stand at their tent doors and weep and moan and groan because they wanted chicken. They wanted the flesh pots of Egypt. Well, I come back to you and to me. What is your spiritual condition today? Are you still struggling with sin in your life? And saying, well, you know, I'm just doing the best I can do, Pastor Ray. A man's got to do what a man's got to do. Really? I need to know. Is this broadcast of value to you? Shall I continue to preach? Or shall I go somewhere else? Will you meet the conditions for salvation? Will you repent of your casualness 
your slowness, your love of the world, your lust for entertainment, will you turn from your wicked worldly ways and finally say, Jesus, whatever it costs, open for me the gates of righteousness. Will you make your peace with Jesus? Will you turn from your sin? Or will you become angry with this broadcast, as some of you have over the last couple weeks, and start for the door? It's easy on this radio to start for the door. All you have to do is turn the radio off. And many have said to me they become very angry with me and they just turn the radio off. And then later they have to come back and listen again because they know that what's being said is said in love and it's the truth. The truth is you have to be honest with Jesus about your soul's condition and you have to make a decision. Will I make my peace with God? Having religion is not making your peace with God. Living in righteousness and innocence before him and not sinning against him, that is making your peace with God. So this whole congregation rises up in mass and walks out on Charles Finney. Now, this deacon that was approving of of Finney's actions said, let's spend tomorrow in prayer and fasting. And so they agreed separately they would go before the Lord in the morning and then in the afternoon they would come together and they would pray. He said, I learned in the course of the day that the people were threatening to tar and feather me. They were threatening to kick me out of Evans Mills. Some of them were cursing me. They said I had put them under an oath and that I had drawn them into a solemn and public pledge to reject Christ and his gospel. This was no more than I expected, and in the afternoon the deacon and I went into a grove together, and we spent the whole afternoon in prayer. In the evening the Lord gave me a great promise of victory. Both of us felt assured that we had prevailed with God, and that the power of God would be revealed among the people that night. As the time came for the meeting, we left the woods and went to the village, and people were already walking to the place of worship. Those who had not already gone, seeing us walk through the village, left their stores and places of business and stopped their games and packed the, the schoolhouse to its utmost capacity. I had not thought even once about what I would preach which was common for me at that time, the Holy Spirit was upon me and I felt confident that I would know what to preach when the time came for action. As soon as the building was packed so that no more people could get in, I arose and without any formal introduction opened with these words. 
say to the righteous that it will be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked! It shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. Isaiah 3, verses 10 and 11. The Spirit of God came upon me with such power that it was like opening a firing squad upon them. For more than an hour the Word of God came through me to them like a sword and was piercing even to the division of soul and spirit Hebrews 4.12. I saw that a general conviction was spreading over the whole congregation. Many of them could not hold up their heads. That night I did not ask for any reversal of the action they had taken the night before or for any commitment of themselves in any way. But I took it for granted during the entire sermon that they were committed against the Lord. Then I set a time for another meeting. And I dismissed the congregation. Should Pastor Ray be preaching to you as though you were not committed to Jesus? Should I preach to you as though you were lost, not saved? Is there evidence in your life of a total breaking of the power of sin? Is there evidence in your life that you have met the conditions for entry into the kingdom of God? If you are still walking in known sin, if you are still struggling, you have not yet met the conditions for salvation. Many of you think you have been converted and saved, and you have not been converted, and you have not been saved. You are just filled with religion. Because you have still not met the conditions of renouncing all wicked ways and giving yourself totally and completely into the hand of Jesus Christ. You are still casual and unconcerned, you don't weep before God? When was the last time you spent a night sleepless, weeping before God for your sin and asking him to come and transform you into the likeness of Jesus? When was the last time you were awakened repeatedly through the night with the command, go and pray? Honestly, have you been born from above? Or are you simply a sentimental religionist? Knowing much theology, but never having fully met the conditions laid down by Jesus Christ for salvation. Finney, Charles Finney continues, As the people withdrew, I observed in one part of the schoolhouse a woman in the arms of her friends. I went to see what was the matter, supposing that she was fainting. 
but I soon found that she was not fainting, but that she could not speak. There was a look of greatest anguish in her face. I advised the women to take her home and pray with her and see what the Lord would do. And they informed me that she was the sister of a well-known missionary and that she was a member of the church in good standing and had been for several years. That evening, instead of going to my usual place of lodging, I accepted an invitation and went home with a family with which I had not before stayed overnight. Early in the morning, I found out that several people throughout the town had tried to find me at my usual residence during the night so that I might visit certain family members who were under awful distress of mind. This led me to go out among the people, and everywhere I found a state of wonderful conviction of sin and alarm for their souls. After lying in in a speechless state for about 16 hours, this sister of a well-known missionary who was a member in good standing. Well, finally, her mouth was opened and a new song was given to her. She was taken from the horrible pit of miry clay and her feet were set upon a rock. Many saw it and feared. She declared that she had been entirely deceived, that for eight years she had been a member of the church and thought she was a Christian, but during the sermon the night before she saw that she had never known the true God. When his character arose before her mind as it was presented her, hope perished, as she expressed it, like a moth. She said that such a view of the holiness of God was presented that, like a great wave, it annihilated her hope in a moment. Do you have a false hope? A hope that is not founded in the scriptures, but instead in the sentimental world of the wicked American church? Are you angry because of what you're hearing today? Are you upset by it? What are you going to do with it? Are you just not going to listen to Pilgrim's Progress anymore? Are you going to send me nasty emails? What are you going to do? He writes, There was one man in Evans Mills who who was not only an infidel, but also a great railer against all religion. He was very angry at the revival movement that was starting. Every day I heard about his railings and blaspheming, but took no public notice of it. He altogether refused to attend any meetings. But in the midst of his opposition, while sitting one morning at the table, he suddenly fell out of his chair. He'd had a stroke. A physician was immediately called. After a brief examination, the physician told him that he could live a very short time and that if he had anything to say, he must say it at once. The man had just enough strength and time, as I was informed, to stammer, Don't let Finney pray over my corpse. And with that, he died. 
During the revival, my attention was called to a sick woman in the community. She'd been a member of a Baptist church and was well known in the place, but people had no confidence in her piety. She was quickly dying of tuberculosis, and they begged me to call and to see her. I went and had a long conversation with her. She told me of a dream that she'd had when she was a girl that made her believe her sins were forgiven. I tried to persuade her that there was no evidence of her conversion in that dream. Her acquaintance affirmed that she had never lived a Christian life and had never evidenced a Christian character. I had come to try to persuade her to give up her false hope and see if she would not accept Jesus Christ so that she might be saved. I dealt with her as kindly as I could, but she took great offense and afterward complained that I had tried to take away her hope and distress her mind. She called me cruel for trying to distress a woman as sick as she was to disturb the repose of her mind. She died not long after birth. But when this woman came to be actually dying, her eyes were opened, and she caught such a glimpse of the character of God, of what heaven was, and of, of the holiness required to dwell there, that she shrieked with agony and exclaimed that she was going to hell. And in this state she died. What do I say? Have you made the covenant to totally give yourself into the hands of Jesus? Or are you still playing religion? Are you eating from the smorgasbord of the devil? Feasting on bitterness and anger and gluttony? Feasting on the entertainment of the world, feasting on everything of darkness and thinking that you're okay? Or are you walking clean before God? Have you wept over your sin? Do you know the holiness of God? Are you still in a make-believe world of the devil, the flesh and the world? What are you going to do with this message today? Are you satisfied to just be a religionist? A self-righteous person? Or do you truly want the humility of Jesus and the wonderful grace of knowing him and being filled with the Holy Spirit? And will you join me this week praying at sunrise and at noon and at, and at the fall of day at sunset? Will you pray with me three times a day for the coming of the Holy Spirit? I was in prayer with a friend at 12 noon today. And we were together praying for you. Praying for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Praying that something new could begin to happen in your life. That you would begin to see the true condition of your soul if you were not totally, completely sold out to Jesus. Asking that you would begin to cry out 
for the gate of righteousness to be opened to you. At 6.30 this morning, I was also alone. And for that precious hour, hour and a half, two hours, I don't know how long I was in prayer, a short time, pleading with God for you, for your salvation, for the coming of the Holy Spirit. For some of you, it's simply ignorance of what God expects because you've not listened very long and you've not been taught by your pastor or the church you go to what the conditions of salvation are. Some of you have not spent hours reading the scriptures, so you don't know what Jesus' commands are. I, I urge you to read the Sermon on the Mount. I, I urge you to read Romans, the sixth chapter. I urge you to read carefully the entire book of 1 John. This is life and death. My brother, my sister, this is life and death. What are you going to do with this Jesus who has arisen from the grave? And we were shouting, He has risen. And people were answering, he is risen indeed. But that's not the question. The question, have you arisen? Have you been a a person resurrected from the death of sin and wickedness and hardness of heart, casualness, indifference? Have you been resurrected? Is your heart cold and hard or is your heart on fire for Jesus? What are you going to do with this Jesus? Almighty God, I plead for my brothers and sisters today who are listening to this broadcast. I ask Jesus that you would come and move in power to reveal to them your holiness, your goodness, your righteousness, that that none of us would be satisfied with low living, worldly living, religion, Lord, it doesn't satisfy the desire of our heart. We need you, Jesus. We need you to come and change us. Lord, give every listener today the gift of conviction and uncover the true condition of their heart. Lord, I'm not asking for anything for them that I've not asked for myself and for the National Prayer Chapel. That every hidden thing that is ungodly would be openly revealed, exposed. The casualness, the slowness, the deadness, the numbness, the desire for things of the world, the busyness, the responsibilities, Lord, we're not bearing the fruit of righteousness in the church today. There is a spirit of such heavy darkness over the American church that it breaks my heart. 
I plead, Jesus, come and deliver us. I pray in your holy name. Amen. I've been reading to you from a book entitled Holy Spirit Revivals by Charles Finney. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. Follow us on Twitter. Listen to the podcasts and the video messages. It's time to get serious with Jesus. I also would love to hear from you. You can write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346. That's Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. We meet at the All Saints Anglican Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Look on our webpage, you'll find a map and directions. My brother, my sister, I love you. I'm praying for you. Pray for the Holy Spirit. Pray for revival. God bless you. I love you. I'll talk to you soon.